When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mailbag, nothing personal, word of the day. Today is Friday, September 23rd. It's not really, though. Do you recognize the blazer? Do you recognize the shirt if you're on the Nothing Personal with David Sampson YouTube channel? Get on there and take a look. And what will you think to yourself? That you may remember the 21st of September. Huh? Earth, wind, and fire? You remember? Yes, that's when I'm recording the mailbag on September 21st. I'm not actually recording it today. We're just releasing it today. I hope you enjoyed the Samson sit down with Jason Caldwell yesterday. I hope you have a great weekend. No show Monday. It's a new year. It's Rosh Hashanah. And it's traveling back from a marathon overseas. But all of that said, we've got a mailbag for you today. And everyone's great. All of the audience. Thank you so much. You guys go on Twitter, David P. Sampson. You are engaging with our TikTok and Instagram, Nothing Personal pages. You are putting questions in Apple reviews. You're doing all sorts of things, and we love engaging with you. Yes, we do. And there's nothing I love more than starting a random day with a three-way. <laughs> Coca, I don't know if you're going to keep that in. Is that too much? Too soon? Did I, too much emphasis on it? Was there too much irrational exuberance with something that, my God, the only person who says it like that is someone who's never done it? <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Huh? Mailbag. Morning, David. Let's get right into it. We have so many questions. I don't know how we're going to get to them all. Morning, David. Morning. Hope all's well. I'm fine. How do three-way trades work? Well, let me tell you, it starts with a cocktail. <laughs> It actually does. Would you believe what GMs, it's not like Moneyball. You're sitting in a room around a table, everyone's spitting tobacco in cups, popping sunflower seeds in while action is happening. That's not really how three-way trades start. You want to know how do three-way team trades work? Are there three GMs on the phone at the same time? Never. Do two GMs have a deal, then one calls another to flip that deal? No. Here it is. Here's how you do a three-way. 
What's the number one most important thing that you need to execute a three-way? I'm going to go all day on this, Coca. Get ready. Cut it if you want. I triple dare you. Willing participants who've got the power to say yes and the desire to say yes. The second thing you need to accomplish a three-way deal is that each side gets something from both other sides. The third way to accomplish a three-way deal is when you've got a two-way deal that isn't quite there. So here's how it works. You have a need, you want a bat, you want an arm. You identify because you sit around all day looking at the rosters of the other 29 teams and you try to figure out, sure, we need that guy, this guy, and this guy, and we're willing to trade this guy, this guy, and that guy. You call up the GM for the team who has that guy and you say, we'll give you this guy for your guy. They say, I don't want your guy, but I'm willing to give you this guy. But in order to do that, I want that guy. And you say, but that guy's on a different team. And the GM says, well, if you want my guy, I don't want your guy. I want his guy. You better call them up to get their guy and then give him to me. So I pick up the phone and call the third guy. And I say, excuse me. I'd like your guy to give to me because I may be moving it to give to that guy. Who would you like? Well, I'll tell you what I'd like. I'd like this guy from you and that guy from him. And if you do that, I'll give my guy to you that you can then give to him. Are you following that? The three-way trade happens because the third team is needed to satisfy the needs of the first team or the second team every time. It doesn't start. No deal starts as a three-way. This actually applies across the board, right? It always starts with a two. And then you say, hey, how about bringing in a third? And that's how the trade works as well. And you can't do a three-way unless there's total honesty of desire. If I'm trying to make a trade with a team and they're not willing to trade with me and they don't tell me why, I'm frustrated. Every time you talk to another team's executive, you say, I want this player. I've got these players available. No. Oh, what would it take? And what you're hoping it takes is someone else from your team who you're willing to trade because one of the games that's played is you offer to trade people who you don't want to give up, hoping that they will say, no, we don't want that player. We want a different player. And the player they want is the actual player you wanted to give in the first place. And that gets worked on at lower levels, like on the field and batting practice between scouts in the stands during games, when people are watching via text at levels way below the GM where we will tell our lower level baseball people to speak to the lower level baseball team of another team to intimate that we want a player on that team and that we've got the following players available, but sometimes we give the wrong list. Sounds a little Machiavellian, doesn't it? But it just happens to be true. It's sort of like game theory. You are trying to figure out a way to get what you want and to give what you want to get that which you want. It doesn't feel good when you give what you don't want to give to get what you want unless you have to have it. That's when you don't make trades at all. We used to call that poaching. Poaching is when 
you are watching SportsCenter or CBS Sports HQ, and you say, my God, that guy just broke his shoulder. That guy's having Tommy John. They need pitching. We've got pitching. We're going to call and we're going to ask for their best prospect, and we're going to give them our overpaid, expensive, middle-of-the-rotation guy because they're desperate. I've been desperate before. When Mike Lowell got hurt in 2003, we wanted Jeff Conan from the Orioles, and we got held over a barrel by Jim Beatty, who used to be my gym in Montreal. And we had to overpay to get Conine. Totally worth it because Don Levinsky never made it and Denny Batista was fine, but certainly not a superstar. But God, were they two good pitching prospects. And Jeff Conine at the time was not worth those type of pitching prospects, but we were under a barrel. Over a barrel? That's two shows out of four days. Is it over center, under center? How many people, Coca? I got five people telling me, David, it's under center. You told me that too, so you'd be six. So you call up a team and say, hey, we got to have your guy because we have an injury. The other team's GM knows exactly what's going on. So they say, all right, but we're going to take two of your best pitching prospects. But what they could have said is, fine, we'll give you Conine. We'll take that prospect you have, but we want a prospect from the Schmageggle team. So I've got to call the Schmageggle team and beg to get that prospect, even though I don't want him, but I know the Orioles want him. So that's actually how three-way trades work. They are very rare. They happen, but not often. And the reason why is it's very difficult to get two teams to agree on anything. When you have to bring a third team in, it just creates more personality. There are owners who say, I'm not doing a three-way. I mean, I mean, not all owners, but many owners say, I'm not doing it. I'm not trading in division. I'm not helping that guy have his make his team better. That actually happens. That sort of high school cafeteria sniping BS actually happens everywhere. Where an owner says, I don't care who wins, but I don't want it to be him. It's happening in the NFL with Haslam right now. Every owner will do anything they can to make sure the Cleveland Browns do nothing but stink. It happens in baseball. It happens in basketball. Three ways. Thanks for the question. All right, let's keep going. Love your show. Thank you. Especially your behind-the-scenes baseball talk. Thank you. What are the behind-the-scenes activities that have to happen after a trade is announced? Oh, I like this. These actually go together. Coca, it's like you put them in an order to make it a flowing show. I love that. Not your first rodeo, because I remember. You've talked about behind-the-scenes interactions that may happen between clubs leading up to a trade, and I just did. But I'm interested in the boring post-trade details. This is amazing, by the way. Like revoking parking passes, taking name tags off lockers, or even legal issues like transferring legal rights to a player's name. Love it. All right, let's answer a question what happens after a trade. So to have a trade, you have to have a signed document. The document is written by your assistant general manager. It is approved by your legal department and by your GM and by your president. The trade document is a contract that says, the Miami Marlins on September 21st, 2007, or let's, let's do a real one. The Marlins on November 3rd, 2012, agree to trade their entire team consisting of Josh Johnson, John Buck, 
Mark Burley, Jose Reyes, may I continue, to the Toronto Blue Jays in return for the following players. Echeverria, Henderson Alvarez, Jeff Mathis. Anyway, on and on and on. Then there's a signature line where the GM has to sign of one team and the GM of the other team. What you do is you send a trade proposal by email. It used to be by fax, by the way. You send it to the team. They, you ask them to send back a signed agreement because you send it to them signed. You don't send a trade offer until you have it approved by your owner. You send it signed and you hope to get it back signed. Often what you get back is, hey, we won't do it this way. We'll do it that way. We got to change the language of this, of that. We want to take this player in, take that player out. All of that happens. And then they send a counter proposal that they sign and leave a blank spot for where you should sign. You go back and forth. And eventually, one time, the receiver of the signed trade agreement signs it, sends it back, and then you've got a trade. Nope. Then you've got to send it to the commissioner's office. The commissioner's office has the right to approve all trades where more than $1 million is being sent from one team to another inside a trade. So if you're trading a a player who's overpaid and you're willing to pay part of his salary in order to get him traded, and that happens every month in Gdanishtik, 75% of trades involve more than a million dollars changing hands. The commissioner has to approve it. Now, it's very bizarre how they approve it. You call someone in the baseball operations department and you say, hey, we need the commissioner's approval on the following trade that we're doing. We're sending X amount of dollars to X team for Y players and we're gonna need your approval in the next two minutes because we wanna get this done. Why? Because we've got 10 other things to do once this trade happens. Sometimes the commissioner takes 10 minutes, sometimes two hours, but he will always get back to you through one of his underlings that they've approved the trade. Once you've got a fully approved trade, then you leak it. Nah, I'm just kidding. Don't leak it, but it gets leaked. Why? Because once you have an agreement signed, once you have the commissioner approve, then you go into medical. Medical is when the trainers and doctors for each team speak to each other and say, hey, how's Josh Johnson's elbow? Ah, pretty sucky. How's Henderson Alvarez's elbow? Ooh, it's fallen off. Ooh, that's not good. Can I see some charts? Sure, we'll show you one set of medical records, but not two. What do you think? Then the doctor calls the GM and says, ooh, I wouldn't approve that guy, or I'd approve everybody, you're good to go. Then the GM speaks to the president, the owner. Then you speak to the manager and say, we've got a trade in place. We've got approval from the commissioner. We've got medicals, all have been approved. We can now notify the players. Before you notify the players, there's three steps you take. One, you notify your clubhouse manager. Your clubhouse manager is the person who goes into the locker of the player who's being traded, packs up all his stuff, takes the nameplate off the locker, keeps the nameplate, puts all the stuff in a Marlin stuffel bag, which they get to take with them to their next destination, puts a bunch of his bats, which are property of the team, but we give the bats that have the player's name on it to the player in a bat bag, and we get it all ready because that player is going to get a call from his new team's traveling secretary. That's the second call you make. 
to your own traveling secretary where you say, hey, George, we're about to acquire the following three players from the following team. Call them up. Here's their cell phone numbers. We'll tell you when to call them because first we're going to call them. Then you're going to call them and you're going to make arrangements for him to meet the team. We want him in the lineup tomorrow. Players actually have three days to appear, but players, if you're smart, you go immediately on the next flight. Yes, it's inconvenient, but the traveling secretary will help you with living arrangements in your home city until you can find a place. Often players who are single swap places, like they'll switch names on a lease, move into each other's apartments. If you've got a family, you've got to figure out something else. And yes, it can be disruptive and no, I don't care. So the traveling secretary has a list of players he has to call. Then we call the players and say, hi, we'd like to tell you that what you've seen leaked is true. We're trading you to the Toronto Blue Jays. God damn it, how can that be true? I have a no trade clause. No, you don't. All right, I guess I gotta go. Can I bring dogs? No, you can't. Ike, David, you're a liar. I'm sorry, Mark. I really am sorry. Believe me, I did not want it to end that way. Trust me. Total mea culpa. You've heard me say that Mark Burley is one of the only players I've ever called prior to a trade and the relationship that it cost me. There have been a few but no relationships have suffered the way mine did with Mark Burley and his family. So you call the player, you tell the player they're gonna get a call from their new team. The GM of the new team calls the player, welcome to the team, we want you, we're excited to have you. You're gonna hear from our traveling secretary who calls the new player and says, get to us in Toronto or Baltimore or wherever we're going. Then the new clubhouse manager will go to the sewing machine that is in every single clubhouse, find out what number the player wants. If that number is taken on the team, then they call the player and say, hey, what number do you want? You can't have number six. What number do you want? The player will say, hey, who's got number six? It's retired. Nothing I can do. Oh, it's that third year player. Hey, I'm going to call him and offer him a Philippe, a Patek Philippe. Maybe a Breitling, maybe a Panerai, some sort of piece of jewelry, watch, car, or other such sum of money to get the number. But either way, the player says to the clubhouse manager, all right, I've got a deal. Make up my number eight jerseys. So the clubhouse manager is then making up all the jerseys. You're making up home jerseys. You're making up road jerseys. You're getting the shorts that they wear before BP. You're getting the BP top. You're getting hats. You get the hat size from the other side's clubhouse manager. They all talk. They all share information. So all this is going on. So when a new player comes to his new team, walks in the locker room, his locker is all set with his stuff. They've got his duffel. They've got his bag. They switch his stuff from his old team's duffel to his new team's duffel. They get the traveling suitcase because every player gets a suitcase with the Marlins logo on it to take on road trips. We don't want to take a guy with a Blue Jays bag on a Marlins road trip, so we give him a Marlins suitcase. We have a bunch of suitcases and we sew on or iron on the Marlins decal. So there are tons of things that are going on, but guess what? Not one of the things I've mentioned actually makes a player switch teams. You can call the player, you can exchange medicals, you can have a signed agreement. You can have permission from the commissioner. 
He can have his new uniform, new hat size. He can have a new apartment, a new hotel room. He can have a whole new life. But he does not become a member of a new team until he is officially in the computer that GMs use and their assistants. It's a roster management tool encoded, encrypted, that cannot be broken into where you remove the player you're trading from your roster because you're only allowed 40 people on your roster. And if you try to take your new player and type him in that he's part of your team and you don't have room for him on your roster, the computer will say, hey, no room, no dice, try something else. Put a player on the 60-day DL, designate a player, IL, designate a player for assignment, which takes him off the roster. Release him, do something, but there's no room for you. So the first thing you do is you eliminate the player you've traded, which opens that player up because the same player with the same ID number cannot be on two different rosters. You remove the player you've traded mechanically from your roster. That puts that player in the Netherlands in purgatory until the new team's GM gets on the computer and adds that player's ID and that player name to his roster. Then once you've got room on your roster for the player you've let go, you then add the team, add the player from the team where you got him who's in his own purgatory and you put him on your roster. That is the way that players switch teams. Now here's the interesting part that can lead to someone getting fired. When you get assigned the contract of a player, and that's the term that we use, we are assigning you this contract. That means the new team is responsible for every provision in that contract that that player has signed with his old team. That contract was between Jeff Conine and the Baltimore Orioles. Well, we now have him on the Florida Marlins. Guess what? That contract still says Baltimore Orioles, but every single thing in it we are responsible for is his new team, the Florida Marlins. If you don't read the contract that you are getting assigned to you, shame on you. You have to read about how much the player gets paid, when the player gets paid, what the perks are in that contract, what the bonuses are in that contract. Anything that is not in that original agreement between the two teams where you can put in the agreement, hey, if this player gets 400 at-bats and makes another million dollars, you're paying it, not me. This player's got 390 at-bats. He only needs 10 more to get the million dollars. You're going to pay 90% of that million because he earned it getting at-bats for you. So you've got to give me the money once he gets to 400. If all of those types of specifics are not in the written agreement between teams when a trade is happening, then when you get assigned the contract, that's your contract. That's your liability. That's your responsibility. There have been times when AGMs and GMs have not properly read a contract, and that doesn't work out well for anybody. So I hope that answers your question, Kurt. I appreciate that. A lot is being asked of people working in schools. Teachers have more and more things to do. The shortage of teachers right now, um, you know, having to fill a lot of holes and, and wear a lot of hats, it's, it's very difficult. There are steps you can take to manage stressful times, whether in the classroom or outside of work. For me personally, I can disconnect by just being outside. Laughing. <laughs> Works a lot. 
Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. All right, let's keep going, Coca. Hey, David. Hi. Hope all's well. Not bad. My hamstring still hurts, and I think I pulled my groin. Other than that, by the time you listen to this, well, no, I will not have run a marathon. I'm not going to be able to run the marathon on Sunday. I'm going to have to walk it. I'm going to try to do it. I'm going to try to finish. I'm going to try. Yes, I am. There is no I and quit. Hey, David, hope all's well. You talk a lot about your management style with players and coaches, but wanted to ask what your management style was to your corporate side direct reports. Was the player coaching style similar to corporate Samson? Thank you. I'd like to talk about management style. For the front office, I had a very simple rule and it was a rule that was, uh, I applied to players as well. My doors open, literally, actually. Any employee at any level can call my assistant Beth and make an appointment to come see me at any time to talk about any subject. I will allocate and I have 15 minutes or more to any employee who wants to have an audience with the team president. The reason I did that is I never was given that opportunity when I was working in a corporate culture like at Morgan Stanley, where my boss's boss's boss would not ever let me visit or talk, never gave me the time of day. And I promised if I were ever in that position, and I do it still with nothing personal, if you reach out to me, I try to reach back out to you. I try to respond to your DMs. Back then there weren't DMs, or there were, but I wasn't on Twitter. So the way I would engage was by having an open door policy. I wanna hear from you what's happening in your mind, what I can do, if anything, to make it easier for you to do your job better. So my management style is that I wanna look as good as I can as team president, and to do that, I need hundreds of people, thousands of people working toward the same goal that I have, which is not just making myself look better, it's making the team function win as many games as possible. If you can't win, make sure the experience is good at the ballpark. If you can't make sure the experience is good at the ballpark, make sure the food is good at least. If you can't make sure the food is good, make sure they don't sit in traffic. If they can't not sit in traffic, make sure that you have a good post game show so they can listen to it. If you don't have a good post game show, make sure you have a deal to play good music that my father bought with two Zuzim. It's a Passover joke. Although it's Rosh Hashanah coming up, not Passover. The Jewish New Year coming up next week. Happy New Year. And then a week later, you get to repent on Yom Kippur for all your sins. The best thing about being Jewish, I mean, there's a lot of really cool things, but instead of going to confession like every day or every week, you get to confess your entire year's worth of sins on one day. And then you get a full clean slate so you can commit sins again for the next year. It's genius. It's such efficiency, right? Do whatever you want for 364 days. On the 365th day, we're not going to let you eat. You're going to be hungry, tired, and grumpy. But boy, are we going to give you forgiveness for all the crap you did. And then we're going to say, go forward and prosper. Do it again. So the first thing I did is I had an open door policy. Second thing, I would not ask anyone to do something that I would not do myself. And that's not just lip service. I'm not asking you to mop the floor if I'm not willing to mop the floor or have mopped the floor before. I'm not asking you to talk to fans who are disgruntled if I'm not willing to talk to those same fans. 
If I'm not willing to talk to a player to tell me he's been traded, tell me he's been benched, tell me he's been released, tell him he stinks and his career is over, tell him that he's underperforming and we want to trade him, release him, and never see his shiny face again, we want to fire a manager, I will not make anyone do something that I'm not willing to do or haven't done before. Three, I'm not going to apologize for being the president of a team. I'm going to give you an opportunity to move up the ladder with either title or money, but I'm gonna give you enough rope to hang yourself or to climb all the way up the ladder. That was always the philosophy I had. Obviously, that is insensitive, and I don't mean that literally. And looking back, I would have put it a different way. But I am giving people the opportunity to do their jobs. You want me to sum up my corporate management style? Do your job. If you can't do your job, I'm going to find someone who can because guess what? While I could do your job, I don't want to do your job. Another style. I'm going to make sure that people are working hard, so I'm going to enable them to play hard. Corporate outings, birthday dinners, birthday calls from me, parties. I want people to have fun because life is not just about work. But I'm going to want you to party hard, but I'm going to want you to work hard too. So another management style is work hard and play hard. Don't just play hard. You're not going to last. Don't just work hard. You're not going to last because you're going to burn out like a shooting star. There is one person I came across in my career. One person. You know who you are, Michelle. Never seen someone work harder, ever. Did you have fun? I hope you did, Michelle. I hope you have fun in your retirement at least. But I will say this, working hard, playing hard, that's part of my style too. Do you think that I treat players differently than other employees? No, they're the highest paid employees. There's no doubt about that. The majority of players made more than I made. Always strange when your employees make more than you make, but I grew up in sales. I loved making more money than my boss made. I have no problem having people who work for me make more money than I do. It doesn't change the fact that they report to me. Players report to their manager, the general manager, president, owner. There were some players you had to treat differently because of personality. That's the same with people in marketing, sales, and finance. So when he asked, do I have a different style? You've got to KYA. You've got to know your audience. You've got to know your customer, KYC. KYP, know your player. KYE, know your employee. KY, know your. It doesn't matter what letter you use next. One of the most valuable tools that exists one of the ways to succeed that all of you want to do, no matter what your definition of success is, understanding your opponent, understanding the people you're working with, understanding the people you're working for, knowing how to read a room. How many times have people done something? Side note here, Coca. How many times have people done something that's so cringe-inducing that you say to yourself, how is it possible that that person doesn't see 
what I see? How is that person not reacting to the situation the way I react? That's because those people don't know how to read a room. Like they walk into a silent memorial and start screaming. I love you, man. Oh my God, everybody's quiet. I'm sorry. So the answer is my styles are very similar. And now you know what they are. Thank you. Hi, David. Ooh. All right, here we go. Hi, David. I have a non-sports related question. We're, they, we're here for that. You know we do sports, culture, entertainment, politics. What do you got? On a recent show, you spoke about delivering a daily podcast with only two people. That's true. It's me and Coca every day. Almost every day that ends with why you're going to hear from me and Coca. I've started a podcast on PTSD and smoking meat called the Smoking PTSD Podcast. By the way, word to our sponsors. I've never heard of that show. I've never listened to that show. If that show is inappropriate, then I have nothing to do with it. If that show is amazing and becomes the next nothing personal Rogan, ESPN Daily cover three, then you heard it here first. I started a year ago and then stopped after I was sick for a while. I finally recorded another episode after almost a year long hiatus. Along with PTSD, I find myself struggling with imposter syndrome. Did you ever struggle with imposter syndrome? And how did you overcome or at least adapt to it? Thank you. Thank you for asking that question. So for those who don't know what imposter syndrome is, it's for people who feel as though they don't deserve to have what they have. They feel as though they are a fraud. They feel as though they're gonna be discovered any minute now that they're not as good as people thought they were. They're not as handsome as people thought they were. They're not as smart as people thought they were. They're not as loving as people thought they were. I tell people often that I am an actor and that the person you see on this screen right now, that may or may not be me. I show you my vulnerabilities in a way that makes me incredibly anxious and nervous because I want you to know the real me, but do you know the whole me? Absolutely not. I'm not sure there's anyone in the world who knows the whole me. I think everyone would agree that you split yourself up and give different parts of yourself to different people. I think many people out there do and accomplish things or try to do and accomplish things and say to themselves, what if they find out that I'm not good enough to do this? Players think about it all the time. What if they find out that I wasn't worthy of this big contract I just signed, which is why you see players struggle after their new deals so often. What if they find out that not only did I not deserve the job that I got, but that I can't do the job that I have? What if my family finds out that I'm not able to be the loving husband and father that they think I should be, but I can only be what I'm able to be. I can only give what I'm able to give. What if it's not enough? I'd like to tell you there's a shortcut to this. I'd like to tell you that it's not something serious, but I'd be lying to you. The imposter syndrome is something serious and almost everybody suffers from it. 
in one way or another in one part of their life or another. I've thought about that way before I got into baseball. I was always a short kid being bullied, but I was always pretty athletic and I always had to prove myself and I would not get chosen for organized teams, but then I'd play intramural teams and I'd be good. I'd play other sports where I had an opportunity to excel, surprise people. What if people realize that I'm actually just insecure and that when I'm the class clown, it's because I need attention so badly because I don't get enough in various other parts of my life. What if people discover when they think I'm so smart that I'm not as smart as they think I am? What if I go on a show and I don't win, but instead I get voted off first? What if I run a team for 18 years and only win one World Series? What if I try to sell a team and only get $600 million instead of $1.2 billion for the owner who deserves that and more? What if my siblings are children or spouse or significant other? What if they firmly and finally discover that I'm not the man they thought I was for whatever reason? How do you deal with that? Managing expectations with honesty, with line? Lowering expectations, maybe raising expectations so no one possibly could manage it. Or maybe you do it by running marathon after marathon, doing athletic feats and endurance feats that there's no reason to keep going, but you do anyway to try to prove to yourself and others that you can be extraordinary and spectacular. Trying to cheat death by looking young and having the genes to do it saying you're never gonna dye your hair, do any sort of plastic surgery and mean it. But what happens if I look in the mirror one day and don't recognize myself because I'm looking right at my father all of a sudden? Does that change? Will that make you an imposter? Have you ever been in a room where you feel so uncomfortable that you don't belong? That you say to yourself, you have to leave and you get an anxiety attack to the point that you start sweating, shaking, heart palpitating and you just bail out of the room? Is any of this sounding familiar? I've got a surprise for you, Chris. It's familiar to everyone. It's just not that everyone will admit it. Yeah, I struggle with imposter syndrome. Do you? Hey, David. Let's do another one, Coca. Hey, David. Hope you had a great trip. Uh, haven't come back yet. Oh, you're talking about the last one. Listen to the mailbags while you were gone. Oh, this is Africa related. And just wanted to say that I appreciate what you do immensely. So now in my head, I'm thinking, does this person mean that? Or is this person just saying that because they want their question read on the air? Or are they have no comparison, right? So they hear my show and say, wow, this is a great show, but they don't listen to other shows. Or maybe they just don't like their own voice, so they want to hear someone else's voice. I can give you 20 different things that are in my mind when I read that sentence, and you wonder why I don't sleep? I would love to pick your brain sometime about what sports psychology looks like in the clubhouse and if it benefits players or management more. I've been debating for a few years about getting into sports psych and would love to know more about what it looks like from an interior perspective. Yes, yes. In 1999, upon joining the Expos, I had a friend named 
Jeff Fishbein. He was my best friend in college and he was a psychologist. We had been out of college for nine years at the time and he was a psychologist and a good one and he wanted to get into sports psychology and I wanted to give him a chance and we had him apply to the expos and he got the job and he had to convince the owner, he had to convince me, he had to convince our GM, Jim Beatty, our assistant GM, Larry Beinfest. Dr. Jeff Fishbein has now been a sports psychologist in Major League Baseball since 1999. He was with the Expos, the Marlins, and now with the Chicago White Sox. He has helped fix players. He's helped fix me. You got some more work to do there, Fishy. Sports psychologists are in position where they are not performance psychologists only. They are also armchair psychologists. They are there to help players compete to the best of their ability and compartmentalize for three hours a day at a minimum to make sure that everything impacting them off the field does not impact their performance on the field, to help them visualize success, to help them get out of their own way, to help them understand why some of their fathers are so involved in their careers, to help them understand why some of their agents don't have their best interests in mind, to help them understand why they get booed from time to time, to help them understand what it is to fail. Baseball is a game of failure not a game of success. Baseball requires strong, sound mental ability. It requires a psychologist on staff full-time looking after players, looking for signs. How many of you spend time looking for signs when you see something? Was it a sign that a couple days ago was episode 666 and the word of the day I wanted to do was hell? Was it a sign that a couple days ago the episode was 666 and the entire episode was about a bunch of devils? Is it a sign when you see one glove that someone who's got the other glove that could drop from a sky could be from the love of your life, from your beshert, from your destiny? How do you know what the signs are? Practice? Study? process of elimination when what you've tried before hasn't worked so you try something new trying to get players to be healthy and stay healthy is one of the most difficult things that I encountered over the entirety of my career when you're close to it and you're running a team you are dismissive of off-field distractions because you want those players to be robots the way I was do your job that's all you need to be doing Dr. Fishbein spent hours talking to me about that concept, telling me that the issues that players have at home are like the issues you have at home. The issues the players have with their kids are like the issues you have with your kids. The anxiety that you have around people or with people or meeting people or germs or anything else, guess what? Players have it too. Sometimes when you're in a meeting and you can't function, that's how players feel when they're on the mound and they say, please don't hit the ball to me. And we've got to get the players to a point where they're looking at the pitcher, they're looking at the hitter, and they're saying, I triple dare you. I want you to hit it to me. When I get the ball, I'm not going to be eating sunflower seeds. I know there's a man on first one out. When I get the ball, I know that I'm going to second base because I want to start a double play. I am visualizing what's happening next. Where am I going on the field? Those visualization tactics are what you can use off the field too. You can use it in your life.
I visualize everything. I visualize every finish line. I visualize the finish line of every race, every activity, whether it's a minute long activity, a day long activity, an hour long activity. I visualize myself getting through it, going through it, doing the things I have to do to get to the end successfully. Sports psychologists know the right time to approach players, the right time to approach executives, never directly after a loss, after a pitcher gives up a game losing home run, you don't go up to the pitcher and start talking about it that second. After a player hits a walk-off grand slam, you don't go up to the player that second. You go up to the player the next day and say, what do you remember about that feeling? And then you work on getting that feeling again. What do you remember about that feeling when you gave up the home run and you work on never getting that feeling again. One of the things that performance psychologists and sports psychologists work on are when players who have been the best at what they do their whole careers all of a sudden are not the best anymore. It is unbelievable. Think about when you go to the minor leagues, you've been the best at every league, and then you get to the minor leagues and everyone's as good as you are. Imagine when you get to the major leagues. Imagine going to like Yale. You've been the smartest person in your elementary school, middle school, high school, then you go to yell and you're like, oh, crikeys, everybody's as smart as I am. I feel like a moron. That leads to anxiety. It may lead to lack of performance on and off the field. What about those players like Steve Sachs? Remember that guy? He was a second baseman and he couldn't throw to second anymore. Uh, there was a twin named uh, Chuck Knobloch. He got the yips. That's what we call it. The yips are when you can't throw somewhere. John Lester was the pitcher who had the yips who couldn't throw to first base. Other people have the yips when they can't throw to first base from second base or they can't throw to first base on a pickoff move. We used to love playing against John Lester. You know you can steal bases whenever you want because he will not throw to first base because he can't throw to first base. You can get the yips. Pitchers can lose their whole career like Rick Ankeel. He had to become a hitter. He was Shohei Otani before there was Shohei Otani. He was a dominant pitcher who became a not bad hitter because he could no longer throw over the plate. Do you remember how awful it was to watch all those wild pitches he was throwing when he was a Cardinal pitcher? And he never was able to pitch again. Psychologists deal with the yips by trying to disassociate that action. The action of bringing the ball off the ground into your glove, transferring it to your hand, throwing it over to first base, trying to make it so it is an automatic action, trying to remind pitchers what it was like to have the mechanic that led to them being able to throw strikes, visualizing what a pickoff move is, practicing it, muscle memory. But guess what? Like with anything, it doesn't always work. How do you know when to hold them? How do you know when to fold them? It's one of life's great mysteries. Good luck if you're gonna be a sports psychologist. We need them. Everybody needs them at every age. Well, that's the time for today's mailbag. So many more questions to get to. Hey, have a great weekend. Enjoy football. Enjoy baseball. We'll be back on Tuesday. Happy New Year to those who celebrate. Happy Monday to those who don't. Remember, it's just business. Although a lot of these questions were quite personal. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. 
Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.